1: and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Those of you who've been listening since at least March know that we have declared Inquiring Minds a COVID-19 free zone. We wanted to give you a place where you could hear science news, where you could think about science and not also have to think about the novel coronavirus. But this week we're making an exception. Given the recent surges in the U.S. and potentially the coming of a second wave in Europe, we thought it'd be important to talk about contagion from a scientific perspective. And so we invited associate professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Adam Kucharski, onto the show, because he just published a book called The Rules of Contagion, and he studies infectious diseases, including COVID-19. Adam Kucharski has been very busy lately, as you can probably imagine. And given the timeliness of his book, a lot of people want to talk to him. But in particular, I wanted to know how things are changing. What do we know now in the summer of 2020 that we didn't know in the winter of 2020, and how should that affect our behavior moving forward? What do we know about COVID-19 and how it spreads? Adam Kucharski, welcome to Inquiring
2: Minds. Thanks for having me.
1: So I want to start by Having you give us an update as to how things, I mean, this is almost an impossible question to answer, uh, how your thinking about contagion has changed as a result of COVID-19, given that you published your book just, it seems, from my reading of it, as things, it was a threat, but it didn't seem that it was necessarily a guaranteed, globally changing, (laughs) world-changing thing at the moment.
2: Yes, the the book came out um, originally in the UK in in February, so it was that period where it was really, I think, this transition from something that was a an outbreak in Asia, which potentially was still containable, to something which was was really very much um, more widespread. And I think, in a way, going back and um, and and looking at sections of the book that were obviously written before the pandemic is has been a bit surreal. I mean, on the the, I think the second or third page of the book, it talks about a second wave of a pandemic after social interactions reduced the the first one and. Towards the end of the book, it talks about tracking behaviour to try and try and get data to um, to control transmission. So I think a lot of those themes um, were there. But uh, one of the things that's certainly very striking now, um, I think, with the pandemic is uh, the diversity of outcomes um, we're seeing. I think this is going to to really even be amplified over the coming months. That we've got you know countries that that really haven't achieved control, and it's it's likely that. Um, We'll we'll see growing outbreaks, potentially some accumulation of immunity in those those populations. Eventually, um, elsewhere in the world, you know, really intensive efforts to contain it, often with quite high cost, whether it's enclosed borders or, or you know, extreme restrictions. And yeah, I think in six months' time, we'll we'll potentially see a, a huge diversity in where countries are and and the impact it's had both on on society and in terms of health.
1: It's like reading your book and I knowing that it was written, at least, if not published before COVID-19 was such a big deal. You were right so, so, in so many parts of it in terms of your saying, well, this could happen and here we are facing facing these exact scenarios. Um, but I also found it really interesting how, as you described, there's such a diversity of the way that governments have handled the pandemic, um, the virus, uh, the response to it, what's happened politically in terms of even within a country. So, you know, I'm in the U.S., you know, we are now, uh, you know, we're doing the best at making it uh, the worst <laughs> pandemic right here. So as Americans are always great at that. So um, so here, you know, but and yet we have all these different scenarios within our own country even uh, and all these people making different decisions. So I wondered if we could kind of delve a little bit more deeply into the ways in which uh, we have observed other countries dealing with the pandemic, um, if we could take case studies into account here, um, and what that might mean for their future. So the first question I think I'm kind of interested in asking you about is, why were some countries that had, you know, very big... Uh, outbreaks to begin with, Italy, for example. How come they're not having problems now? <laughs> like what what do you can you can we point to some indicators that show us that that they were able to see the steep decline in numbers?
2: Yeah, I think um one one massive effect has just been the change in behavior. And actually if we, we look at social mixing data, um certain UK post-lockdown, we saw about a 75% drop in, in social contact. So actually the the first signal that we had in the UK that lockdown had worked was data on social mixing um, immediately afterwards, because obviously it takes time um, for the effect of control measures to show up in, in things like cases and hospitalizations. Um, and that's similar. I mean, in China, in Wuhan, it was, it was a larger decline in contacts. So I think it was about 85, 90%, um, which is why their the outbreak came down sharper, but certainly if you reduce your, your social interactions that far, it just brings the epidemic down in, incredibly quickly. Um, but I think that the challenge for, for Europe is that a lot of these countries have had, it measures in pretty stringently and things have relaxed, but certainly a lot of countries are nowhere near back to where they were um, in February or March. And I think the countries that have started relaxing more are starting to see flare-ups. So I think similarly with um, New York, for example, yeah, I think be- because things were, were so hard and things had to be kind of so stringent in terms of control, um, I think there is probably a lot more caution coming out of it um and I think yeah, if we look at um I guess you know places like israel australia um even you know Luxembourg now in europe that that have got further along in easing stuff um you know this virus can come back very quickly, and I think it's it's just a feature of transmit- transmission that you know the virus doesn't really mind how good a job you were doing three months ago. it's just essentially affected by what where you are now um so so I suspect some of these declines it may well um, lead to to very dramatic rises if countries ease things off too much.
1: I mean, we see that in, if you just compare the state of California and the state of New York, where, you know, if you look at their curves, you know, we here in California, I think, felt really proud of ourselves because our curve was really flat for a very long time. And we kind of, I think, were patting ourselves on the back saying, look, you know, all the, you know, the fact that San Francisco was one of the first cities in the U.S. to go down into lockdown, even though it had its first cases, you know, we were proud of the fact that we didn't see the kind of spike that uh, New York or, or Manhattan experienced. And yet, we also haven't been able to see the decline, and it made me wonder whether this was because because it was never such a real immediate threat. So like the timeline of how threatening the virus is like it's continued a, a slow simmer in California. And now it seems it feels as if it's getting out of, out of control. Whereas in New York, it was totally out of control. And so, you know, then it came down is that what do you think about that? You know, or or, or can you tell us more about how that might work?
2: Uh, yeah that that feedback effect between behavior um and outbreaks is is an incredibly important one i mean a number of outbreaks we've worked on over the years uh you you do see that behavioral change because if you have um a a disease causing enormous damage in your local community you will change your behavior um you know the exact way in which people change is is difficult to predict but it's not reasonable to expect everyone will continue um the same but i think the 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 difficulty with this virus is the, the lag, particularly if, um, if you're not seeing a lot of transmission reported or detected, that by the time we get to a situation like Italy, like um, Spain early on, like New York, where hospitals are filling up, even if you intervene at that point, all of the infections that have already happened and are kind of you know about to show symptoms, about to get more ill, that's happened. That can't be stopped at that point. Um, and so that's where this, this kind of longer difficulty Can occur, and it it is a really good question. It's something that I I found quite difficult through that period um, in kind of late February, where it was really clear that this was you know this was going to hit a lot of countries um, across Europe much further afield very hard. Um, But I think there was always a sense of disbelief, you know, when I did media interviews um, that that this could happen, Um, and you know, perhaps there is that that local effect that for people who it is that tangible. Um, you know, they'll be happier to change their behaviour in a longer term versus places that haven't. But it's it's a very expensive way to learn a lesson if you have to wait until your your local system's overwhelmed.
1: You know, there's so much human psychology that, that is tied into here, you know, about this, the, the, the time lag between cause and effect, I think, makes this virus particularly difficult to contain because, you know, you change your behavior, you don't see an effect for weeks. And then, you know, you change your behavior again, you don't see that effect for weeks, whether, it's, you know, increasing social interaction or decreasing social interaction. So it's very hard to not just throw up your hands in the air and say, well, you know, there's nothing we can do to stop this virus.
2: I think it is that almost that lag- lagging indicator effect that is is going to be an enormous challenge. And it, it also influences your ability to to do more targeted measures. Because in an ideal world, we would disrupt the lives of people who are immediately at risk for a short period of time to reduce onwards transmission, and then other people could just go about their, their normal lives. I mean, that's what we we do for pathogens that are easier to detect and you know, have, have clearer symptoms when people are spreading it. But just the nature of, of transmission, a lot of it occurring very mild symptoms, the outbreaks can very quickly get away from you. And just to use one example, somewhere like Melbourne, where they had cases detected, um, uh, you know, some buildings, um, residential buildings were, um, were shut down, and then a local community, and then um, a few suburbs, and then a city, and then a region. And that was all in a very short space of time, because essentially, by the time the measures had gone in around one local area, the outbreak was causing problems in another. And so it, is, it has been remarkable in in many areas, just how fast the, the virus can move away um, if it's not being detected.
1: And I guess that underscores the importance of a kind of consolidated government-based uh, effort to to contain that that is you know that where everybody's on the same page and I think that's probably the biggest problem we have in the U S is that we have such a, a polarized uh, political climate here that we can't get everybody on the same page. But I wondered if you could if if we can learn something from um, you know countries like Sweden which had a more less a fair approach uh, compared with some of its neighboring com- countries that kind of locked down in terms of. You know what is this? What is the current thinking uh, with respect to developing a kind of herd immunity or allowing a lot of people to contract the virus versus having to play this whack-a-mole game, uh, where you know you're continuously trying to tamp down out outbreaks when there's this lag.
2: Yeah, um, I think diversity of what well, I suppose what's been seen as a strategy versus what's been seen as an outcome has been really interesting in Europe because Sweden did put in quite a lot of measures i mean the the nature of of their society is a lot of these were less top down but people just on their own social distancing and a lot of things moving to remote working universities um moving online this sort of thing and i think it's, it's really just the, the, the question of how you keep transmission at the the what would be a manageable level and obviously the the appropriate level for different countries will vary but essentially to to do that and not have something that um, really skyrockets and overwhelms your health system you need to ke- keep the epidemic flat over time and so you can either do that by having just the right amount of measures in place that it's not increasing but it's not decreasing and that seems to be what Sweden really went for that at no point has that epidemic been coming down rapidly it's been coming down gradually um, but equally they haven't had for a prolonged period, that really rapid um, growth. And actually, if you look at stringency now across Europe, there's these indices of of how much control is in place. A lot of other European countries actually have similar stringency to Sweden. So it may be that there's this kind of inherent level of inconvenience and disruption that's needed just to kind of make sure the the virus can't spread. And that happens to look quite a lot like the level that Sweden had. Um, I mean, on the herd immunity issue, I mean, there's obviously a lot of discussion and uh, you expect, there's still a lot of ongoing speculation about the the extent to which um, Sweden has got there. I mean, uh, the estimation work we were doing was suggesting that they were very far off in, in terms of level of inf- infection. And the, the serology that's coming through suggests that they would have to keep seeing cases for really a prolonged period of time um, to get to that point. And I think the way I've always seen herd immunity is it's it's an end point that countries may well... En- well may well get to for, for just lack of a better solution. Um, and I think around the world, certainly in Latin America, there probably are going to be countries that immunity will will end that outbreak. Um, but we'll see enormous impact on their health systems to get to that point. So it's a kind of, it's a, it's a side effect rather than I think um, an aim. And actually where, where Sweden are currently, I suspect that they, they probably still got quite a lot of susceptibility and it's those, those moderate Measures that that happen to be the right balance, uh, keeping transmission low. That's that's doing the job, and it may well be that sort of balance we we see a lot of other countries converging on too.
1: Do we know what the sort of range uh, of infectious uh, of infection rates have to be in order to kind of say that we've got herd immunity to COVID nineteen? Like, and so where is the US in that process? We have almost four million cases. We have a population of about three hundred million people. How far away are we from seeing herd immunity?
2: So I think uh, overall, the estimates that we've had, and I think some of the reports that have been coming out in terms of um, antibody data suggest that that less than 10% of the US overall um, has been infected. And it it depends a little on behaviour and kind of how people's interactions are structured. But I think for everyone to go back to normal and to be confident, you're not going to see large amounts of ongoing transmission um i think it would be be hard to be confident until at least say 40 50 percent of the population have been infected so that's kind of four or five times um potentially the, the impact that's already been seen um in the us uh so locally you may well get some areas um that, that end up at that point i mean certain parts of new york that, that are probably at that sort of level but i think to to have that as an aim that somehow you're going to manage this incredibly rapid virus to, to hit that point, I think is is very difficult. And I think it's more just about that balance of measures that can try and reduce the impact as sustainably as possible.
1: Speaking of this kind of variety in where, you know, where the numbers are in different places, you know, th- this this virus has really put a, shined a spotlight on inequality uh, in so many different ways economically in terms of people who have to work uh, or people who are you know people of, of color who are uh, s- accounting for a, a vast majority of cases in 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 the US compared with their um, population and and so it, it it made me wonder whether there were examples that we could look at in history of how the the you know the inequalities that that are um made Obvious through these kinds of epidemics or pandemics, has has there been cases in which that's actually improved afterwards? Or um, and so is there some kind of hopeful story that we can uh, latch onto, or are we headed towards a, a much more dystopic future in terms of these inequalities?
2: I think it certainly surfaced a lot of inequalities um, in a population, and unfortunately, that's often something we do see in history. I suppose one of the major recent examples is the HIV/AIDS epidemic, which probably a lot of the response was shaped by the fact that there was a lot of stigma directed towards that community um, around it. And, and perhaps if if that was a a disease which you know, in the eighties had affected more the groups who were um, that you know the sort of people who would be empowered to to have uh, decisions that could could change the response, we would have seen something very different. And unfortunately, it's kind of hard to see examples i think where um there hasn't been that issue of, of stigma early on and we, we we've kind of seen an immediate benefit to this i mean even just to think of a recent example in korea when they had that flare-up in um bars in an lgbt area there was actually that that sort of hampered the response because people were reluctant to come forward because testing wasn't anonymous at that point and so I, I think it's just it's really a story throughout the history of epidemics that populations that underserved by by public health for whatever reason, not only kind of get hit harder um, by outbreaks, but then also, I guess, suffer more of the kind of long-term consequences. I mean, another example I think was an outbreak investigation of STIs in, uh, in Colorado Springs in the early 80s, um, which I mentioned in the book. And it's uh, one where I think a lot of the coverage and, and writing about that outbreak has, has really painted the people who were driving transmission as kind of promiscuous Individuals who were somehow to blame for what was going on, but the outbreak investigations show that the reason that you had these these groups transmitting more than others was really delays in getting treatment; that they were just infectious for a longer period of time, and so this this sort of popular narrative of these these kind of reckless promiscuous people driving this this outbreak just isn't true. If you look at the rich bits of town, they're essentially having more partners, but they're just not getting infected because they've got better access to to healthcare and and so do the networks that they mix in. So. Yeah, it is deeply concerning, um, the the variation in impacts we're seeing within societies.
1: Do you think that that's a driver of this inequality? I mean, I I know there are probably a lot of factors, but access to testing and the stigma that is associated now with a positive test, you know, what that means in terms of being able to go to work. uh, Are these some of the reasons why we're seeing uh, greater numbers in in populations that are um, traditionally marginalized?
2: I think that's that's a big factor. I mean, we've seen in a number of countries, UK included, high rates of infection um, in in groups that come from minorities. And there's obviously a lot of speculation about biology and all these various factors. But if you look at the data, it it fundamentally comes down to who are the people who are still having to go out to work. And and a lot of the jobs which are more at risk do just just kind of align with... with, um, Jobs that are disproportionately uh, done by people from those groups. And I think we're seeing similar things in the, in the US that often you know, wealthier groups or less marginalized groups um, can, can kind of lock down easily and, and sort of sit out the epidemic, but people have to go to work, people who don't have health insurance or you know, really have very, very large difficulties from an income point of view of, uh, of self-isolating or doing these things that would reduce transmission because of the clustering in those networks as well, that people in that situation are more likely to interact with other people in that situation. You end up with these, these pockets in the network that get hit very hard, and then these other perhaps um, less, uh, you know, less restricted um, in, in terms of access to healthcare and ability to, um, to sort of sit away from the epidemic, those communities get off very lightly.
0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
1: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle
0: memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the internet essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project UP, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.
1: So one of the other things that I've kind of noticed is that, you know, human psychology being what it is, it's very hard to think of the measures that you're taking as having an impact, even if you're not perfect. So, you know, I'll give you the example that if I'm on a diet, and today I eat a chocolate chip cookie, well, I'm just gonna not worry about today, today's a cheat day, I can eat anything I want. And so sometimes I see, uh, or at least Personally, I feel that same tendency. I mean, if I decide, well, I've, you know, I've got to go to work. And so I've got to take public transportation to work. And you know, yes, I'm masked, but you know, I've kind of, you know, interacted with all these people unknowingly, well, then why can't I just go to a park and have a barbecue with some friends? And then, you know, you take off your mask for a minute to eat. And then you're like, well, I just did that. I mean, so now I'm infected, might as well just take my mask off for the rest of the party. (laughs) Those kinds of psychological You know, ways of talking ourselves into behavior that is a bit risky. Um, Can you speak a little bit to the the role that that kind of psychology has played in either previous uh, epidemics or this pandemic?
2: I think it's definitely this this balance, and particularly that where we are um, at the moment, that we we essentially have what I like to think of as as a transmission budget. That if we all stay at home and and don't interact with anyone, you're clearly not going to get an outbreak that can sustain. But as you start to add these bits back into life, each one of those interactions is an opportunity for transmission. And it's, it's worth emphasizing that a lot of our interactions, even if you're infectious, may not end up in any transmission. And Actually, you see the huge variation, um, you know, we just some analysis, others as well, that found about 80% of transmission comes to about 10 to 20% of infectious people, and that's often uh, the events people happen to be at when they're at their most infectious so if they're in a busy workplace if they happen to have gone to a wedding or a party or a bar really that can that can drive a lot of your transmission so I think on the one side it it kind of helps to think about those those dimensions of transmission because actually if you go to a, a picnic in the park where everyone's kind of being sensible the risk is probably many many times smaller than even just going to a bar for an hour or two and so I think a lot of it is is that sort of challenge um of communication that's one I think um in in a lot of historical outbreaks has has been a similar thing i mean there were uh, just one example I know in, in some of the Ebola outbreaks, you know some of the messaging sometimes would say that this is an untreatable disease, and you know if you get it, you must go to hospital and anecdotally that those were kind of contradictory messages which made it very hard for people to to kind of understand not not so much understand but but, but have a clear sense of of what they should be doing in that situation. And I think a lot of the messaging similarly around COVID um, sort of strays between this, this idea that everything's risky and we, we can't possibly do anything versus this kind of fatalistic well, if I do this, I might as well do this as well. But I think we are, we are increasingly getting tools where we, we can quite sensibly manage our own risk. I think a lot of the activities that people um, want to do, probably they can do if they adapt and, and do them sensibly. But there are these, these handful of events and interactions which are really risky and, and we do have to think more about.
1: Speaking of that, I think there's been some indecision, or or I guess like the science hasn't quite caught up on this question of whether you can uh, get COVID-19 from aerosols versus droplets. And so I wondered if you could tell us what the latest thinking is on that question, uh, because I think it has a lot of implications in terms of what we think of as a risky activity.
2: Yeah, I think, um, as with all these things, it's a spectrum. And there's certainly been a lot of discussion about you know the the specific distances and certainly in the UK of you know should it be one and a half meters or two meters or one meters and I think a lot of it does depend on environment and we're um we're getting now increasing evidence in in case studies of environments where people may not have been that close but they were in in the same space for a prolonged period of time um for example like at a fitness class or something where everyone was obviously exhaling a lot and that that suggests that some form of, of aerosolized transmission is, is more probable. I mean, I, I think we're not at a situation like measles, which is a super contagious virus where, you know, if someone sneezes the measles, you're going to have infectious particles hanging out in the air for potentially hours afterwards. And, you know, you just have to look at the reproduction number of measles. You know, if you've got a susceptible population, an infectious individual is going to infect potentially 20 people. COVID doesn't spread, you know, anywhere near as, as, as easily as measles does. So I think... If there is aerosols involved, they are probably going to be more localized, and it probably is going to be more the case of that corner of the restaurant that you're in with people, or that corner of the office. There was a um, a study in a call center in Korea actually. And it was remarkable just looking at the plan. And it was almost like half one half the office got infected, and the other one didn't. So this isn't something where you know the virus can go miles. in the air. I think it is still reasonably localized, and probably still quite dependent on the, the actual contacts and conversations you have. But I think we just have to be aware that, you know, being a meter away from someone in a park is probably much safer than being two meters away from someone in a gym.
1: Because of how air travels in that space.
2: Yeah, and I, th- I think even if you're talking about whether aerosols or small droplets, if you're in this kind of well ventilated environment, it, it just makes transmission much harder than if you're in some in an environment where you've got shared surfaces, you've got a shared airflow, perhaps, you know, air is being recycled.
1: When it comes to how contagious COVID-19 is, we, we often hear these, the R numbers or the row numbers. Can you describe a little bit? Because, you know, I, I sort of get two mixed messages. One is that most people who have COVID-19 are going to spread it maybe to one person. And then there are these super spreaders. And in fact, that most of the outbreaks are related to the super spreaders. So can you sort of unpack what we know about you know the difference in terms of and how that's calculated by this number that you know that that we all track <laughs> religiously. Yeah.
2: Um, so the the reproduction number you can you can really understand by thinking about what happens if someone's infectious. You know, so reproduction number is the average number of new cases that that that, that are generated by a typical person. So, if you have a a person who's infectious, um what's going to influence how much transmission um that that goes on? Well, first of all, it's just how many people do they come in contact with while infectious? You know, how many opportunities for transmission are they creating? It's also the the probability of transmission during that opportunity. So it might depend a bit on the environment. you know are they indoors, are they outdoors? Uh, what stage of the, of their infectiousness are they at? You know is that someone who's um at the peak, you know, much later in the infection and perhaps less infectious. And it also depends on the susceptibility of that population. So we can probably assume a lot of people are obviously susceptible to this. So it's that trade-off between those two things. Um, And we can get an average of those values because we can say, you know, of all of the people in the population, on average, what are their interactions? On average, what's the kind of risk we expect to see per contact? And that gives you this this overall reproduction number, this R value that a lot of people uh, talk about. But of course, each person has variation in their interactions, and that's where this super spreading um, idea comes from. Because although at a population level you might have this this growing outbreak, you know, doubling every week or two, um, as it is in some areas currently, but if you actually go down to that fine scale, if you go into a town or community and you say, "Well, where is this transmission happening?" you know on average you might be getting the transmission to give you that that smooth growth in the curve but actually when you look at where it's it's happening you realize oh it was this one party where you know we saw 10 cases it was this um you know this workplace where there were there were 20 cases and that actually the majority of the growth that you're seeing in that kind of smooth average curve um is actually coming from these small pockets of transmission
1: so if you were given uh, ultimate authority, and you could design a plan for a country. And let's say you have two different countries uh, to, to start with. One is the US where, you know, we have a, a pretty, pretty big problem. Uh, and the other is Canada, which is neighboring, uh, geographically very similar, but, you know, seems to have contained the virus. What would you would you would you have different plans for those two governments? And what might those plans be?
2: I think, yeah, there there would need to be quite different plans depending on where countries are with the outbreak, because ideally you you get a situation where you have very few cases and you keep the epidemic flat over time. So you're you're at low cases or zero cases and you stay there. But of course, if you get a set of control measures that enables your transmission to stay flat and you're at a situation where you've got tens of thousands of cases, you don't want to be staying flat at that level. So I think somewhere like the US, particularly some of the states that are currently seeing very high levels of growing transmission, even if there was a sort of sustainable way of keeping transmission flat in those areas, that's not a good strategy at the moment because it would leave them at such a high level of impact and so many hospitalizations that really they want to be in a situation where they're getting that much lower so they can you know, reopen more potentially um, and still keep the the infection at low levels. Uh, countries perhaps some, some parts of Canada, you know, other bits of Europe where transmission is very low. Um, keeping that flat sustainably is a good objective. Um, and then it's really the question of, of what does that look like? And it, it really gets to the point where it's kind of straying a little bit out of epidemiology um, at this point. Because I can, I can, in my work, lay out a, a bunch of different measures that would give you a flat outbreak. Um, but then it comes back to this idea of transmission budgets where I could say, right, you know, every, everyone has to work from home. We're going to have social distancing and a few of these different things. Um, and that we expect will we'll, we'll kind of keep it pretty flat. But if you want to reopen this, then you might not be able to do this instead. Um, or, you know, it might say, well, you could reopen a bit more, but you're probably going to risk having to have another stay at home order or something to to keep a particular community under control if it, if it starts increasing. So all of these might kind of give you the same epidemic outcome, but obviously from a kind of social and economic point of view, these are hugely differing ways of approaching your outbreak.
1: But like, so, you know, we often hear about the importance of contact tracing, the importance of, um, you know, then isolation and and so forth. So can you can you give us a sense of like, you know, what? like when you have an outbreak the way you do in California, it seems almost impossible to do contract tracing effectively anymore. Or should we still be trying to do that?
2: I think those measures will always have some reduction, but the marginal effect on your outbreak becomes smaller and smaller very quickly. Um, So say you've got got capacity to every day, you know, find a thousand cases and trace their contacts. Um, And so what you're doing is you're reducing onward transmission from a thousand people. And so if you have a 1,000 cases per day, that contact tracing is potentially reducing your onward transmission from your entire outbreak. Whereas if you have 10,000 cases per day, even if you're contact tracing flat out, you're only capable with that capacity of reducing transmission from 10% of all the cases that are happening. So if you've got this this growing epidemic, at best you can reduce transmission by 10% of that. And the, the remaining... Um, transmission you're going to have to reduce with other measures like social distancing so there does become a point where um, the sort of the the use of resources you may be sort of temporarily more efficient to employ in a slightly different way um, given the the effect you're having on reducing transmission I think that's true of almost all control measures I mean essentially most things that have been put in place to counter COVID have had some effect um, but probably some of them have such a a small effect relative to the impact. You know, for, for example, banning people from going outside or to the park, you know, would probably have some reduction in transmission, but relative to the, the kind of health and um, psychological impacts on populations, that measure for, for what it's reducing probably isn't worthwhile as a long term, long term approach.
1: So the first job would be to get down to a lower rate of new cases. Um, and then let me ask you one, if, if we, if and when we do get there or, or, if we don't. How do you think this is all gonna end?
2: I think it's gonna potentially end quite differently in different places. Uh, and I think the the ideal um, is always that places can get, get transmission down. Um, and of that unfortunately that will require pretty substantial um, disruption. I mean, we haven't really seen any country in the world um, bring this under control without pretty extensive social distancing. Even countries like Korea that people point to um, as really good examples in terms of their testing had widespread social distancing, they had remote working, they closed schools, they, they really you know, did have quite a lot of measures um, in place. And so then if you get those those measures down, then it's the question of, of what do you do next? I think contact tracing and, and masks are, are all kind of valuable tools. But then if we look at, um, for example, a current situation in Hong Kong, where these kind of things have been in place, are still now seeing surging transmission. So it's likely to to guarantee that transmission will be low um, we'll need some other things to stay in and we we did some analysis recently of contact tracing measures and really for plausible values of uh, plausible values of how well contact tracing could work even if you're being optimistic you're probably going to need some additional social distancing to to make up the difference and then it just becomes a a long-term question of can you know can society um sustain that that if if optimistically we have a vaccine early next year, yes, we, we probably can keep that level of disruption going um, for for a prolonged period of time. If it's going to take, say, a year or two to get a vaccine, and if that vaccine is not totally effective, then I think we're going to start seeing a lot more um, diversity in how places approach it, because I, I think, as we've seen in num- a number of countries globally, these kind of stringent measures aren't sustainable anywhere, um, either... For kind of social and economic reasons or just because some people just won't want to um to to live like that for a prolonged period of time and and then i think it's where the the challenge is not just going to be about the, the outbreak it's going to be about the the politics and uh, about the information and and really about the kind of um fundamental kind of beliefs uh for, for each community in how they want to approach this
1: so I just want to remind our listeners that Adam Kaczarski's book, The Rules of Contagion, Why Things Spread and Why They Stop, is now available at booksellers everywhere. I wondered if if we could end with a look into history. And, you know, I think a lot of people point to the 1918 flu pandemic as a model for how things might go. Um, is that the best kind of historical case to look at in, if we're trying to predict the future from looking at history? Uh, or is there something else? and And what might that tell us?
2: I think it is a valuable um, case study to look at. Um, even if you, you go back through some of those those reports from the time, it's it's remarkable how much of it looks familiar now. Um, so they had intense debates about the effectiveness of face masks, um, and some people you know would wear them, some people wouldn't wear them, some people should have worn them and got called out on it. Um, there was debate around uh, closing different forms of activities and schools and theatres and bars. And actually the US uh, in, in 1918 put in a lot of these kind of closure lockdown type measures. Um, other countries didn't. So so other countries had a much larger first wave in many cases when the US, some cities actually shut down quite con- considerably. Uh, but in most cases, those shutdowns only lasted a month or two uh, where it got to the point where either the epidemic had really got under control or apparently under control or it just wasn't seen as sustainable. And then a lot of these cities did end up getting a second wave, sometimes larger than the first, sometimes um, smaller, depending on exactly when the measures had gone in. But, but ultimately that epidemic ended because the population um, over a period of time developed immunity against that virus. I think that the nature of um, COVID is slightly different. I mean, first of all, flu viruses do transmit slightly differently. The, the timescales are slightly shorter um, than what we have uh, for COVID, which means that it does make control harder. I and mean, I think COVID is clearly very difficult to control as a virus, um, but the the sort of range of parameters is slightly different uh, to flu. The the population impact is also different. That the 1918 flu really hit the younger groups very hard, um, and we have seen quite a steep age gradient with with COVID. And I think that really does illustrate if you look across different countries, countries particularly in um, in your nursing homes or environments where, where older groups uh, are, you know, the ability to, to make sure that transmission stays out of those groups um, has made a big difference um, in those outbreaks. Obviously, keeping infection out of those groups is much easier if you've got an outbreak that's at low levels. Um, but I, I think that does explain some of the differences. You know, For example, in Singapore, there's been about 45,000 reported cases, but I think fewer than 30 deaths. And that's because the transmission has happened um, in those younger groups. Uh, so I think those, those are some differences with 1918, but it's it's definitely important to learn from history, because I think uh, you're certainly looking at the response and, and the debates that were going on 100 years ago, we realized that, that some of these things, we, we definitely haven't come as far as we might like to think we have.
1: Adam Kucharski, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer-Awald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week when I promise you we will go back to our COVID-19 free zone and cover a completely different topic.